Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Delaney Smith. Delaney is a personal finance guru with a passion for real estate and personal finance. He is a real estate agent at Remax Hallmark Realty and managing editor and founder of Bay Street Blog, a millennial finance hub. He envisions the blog to improve the financial literacy rates among millennials. Jelani bought his first home in Toronto as a recent grad of U of T and looks forward to sharing his knowledge with students and recent grads. Jelani has received multiple agent awards and closed 39 deals in the first 12 months of his real estate career and continues to help clients climb the real estate ladder. All in all, Jelani has the vision of providing guidance to investors, buyers, and sellers with the underlying goal of wealth creation. In my interview with Jelani, we discuss what is house hacking and why do it, how to scale your real estate portfolio using the Burr strategy, and how to successfully work with contractors. Without further ado, here's my interview with Jelani Smith. Hi, Jelani. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean. I'm doing great. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. It's great to have you back on the podcast. I was going to say that it had been a couple years since you were a guest, but then you reminded me that it actually had been quite a bit longer when I looked back at our email exchange. It seems like it's been almost five years. Boy, doesn't time fly. And it seems like you've been doing some very interesting thing in those times. So I'm super excited to chat with you. I came across your Toronto Star articles, your latest one on house hacking. So yes, really excited to speak with you and and share with the listeners some exciting things that you've been up to. Likewise, it's crazy how it's been almost five years since the last podcast. I think I remember the last when we spoke, it was about me buying my first home at the age of 22, right? So now fast forward to today, we're going to be talking about the house hacking, kind of growing the portfolio and et cetera. So I'm looking forward to this podcast as well. Yeah, you're not a spring chicken anymore. You're not 22 anymore, but you're still in your 20s. So you still have a lot of, you still have, I guess, three years left to accomplish some amazing things. So yeah, excited to to talk about these great topics because it's certainly challenging. Some people are finding it challenging to find big cities like Toronto and, and Ottawa. So yeah, I'd be curious to hear how somebody like yourself was able to do it on, on your own in, in some cases here. So yes, let's get started with the Toronto Star article. So I saw when you shared on on Facebook, the Toronto Star article, and it was talking about house hacking. So why don't, for anybody who's not familiar with the term house hacking, why don't you talk a bit about what house hacking is and just define it for the listeners and explain what that is? Because yes, uh, some people may not, I'm sure people are familiar with the concept, but they may not know the term house hacking. So if you could go over it and explain it, then that would be great. 100%. So essentially house hacking is one of the many real estate strategies out there. Mostly applies to your principal residence where live in a duplex, for example, or it can be a triplex as well, quadplex and et cetera. But essentially, like for, in my case, I'm living in a legal duplex. 
which was originally a single family home that I had converted to a duplex, which is also known as two units. So I do live on the main floor and I rent out the basement apartment, which is a legal basement dwelling. And that is rent out for approximately $21.75 per month, plus utilities as well. Wow, it must be very nice to... Is that a basement for $2,100 that you're renting out? Or what is that exactly? That's pretty good rent that you're getting. Definitely. So the basement is a three-bedroom, two-washroom apartment. With wow, that's degree. big. It's rent out for $2,175 per month, plus 30% of utilities. Is that a basement that's quite sizable for a basement? I would say it's the average Scarborough bungalow basement. It's about 900-ish square feet, but it's fully renovated top to bottom with high-end finishes, like quartz countertops in the kitchens, bathrooms, high laminate flooring, smooth ceilings, pot lights, and et cetera. So it kind of went a little bit higher on the finishes to kind of attract better quality tenants and, of course, better rents as well. And you fit in three bedrooms in that basement there? Wow, you really allocated the space well. Definitely, definitely. That's the with Scarborough bungalows or bungalows in general maximize it every square feet of the space. In most cases, it's doable to get three bedrooms, two washrooms in the basement. There's some cases where it might be three bedrooms, one washroom, or two bedrooms, two bath. But I find in most cases, if you allocate the square footage properly, you can get three bedrooms out of it. Well, that's amazing. We'll keep going with your story there. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no problem at all. So essentially, I rent out the basement. That covers a good chunk of my mortgage. And that also helps me leverage on that rental income to refinance the property as well. So I'll just use this duplex as an example of how I was able to secure my additional properties. I purchased it for around $800,000 back in May of 2020. Yeah, so May of 2020. I put about maybe $250,000 of renovations. I did refinance last year on this specific property. The bank appraisal came back at $1.48 million. And keep in mind, I did purchase this property for $800,000. Wow, that's pretty good appreciation. Oh, definitely, definitely. And also, I did buy this property during when COVID first became a thing. So a lot of people were scared to get the foot in the market, buy something, etc. So it was at a time when the market was like a standstill. And it was a great time to kind of start looking for investment properties and as well. Because I'm not sure if you remember back in January 2020, February 2020, the market was like ridiculously hot. Then COVID became a thing in March 15, 2020. And that's when all the buyers just evaporated. So that made a very attractive opportunity for me as an investor or buyers kind of looking to expand my portfolio from there. Well, that's great. You were able to benefit from that there. And yes, so I'm just curious, can you talk a bit more about house hacking and what are the different forms of house hacking, like there's physical separation between the units, there's some people might think that's like having roommates, maybe you can just explain that a bit more for people don't understand the, the term the house hacking you prefer. Like I remember that in the article there, you said you prefer the privacy between the, the units there, but I guess there's different forms of it. So maybe you can just talk a bit more about that. For sure. So for the key for house hacking is making sure there's separation between each units. So you've also mentioned before. So for the reason why I love bungalows is because most cases, bungalows built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. In most cases, they already do have a separate entrance built in. So it's already kind of set up for that dual unit type of property. So there is a separate entrance to the basement. And of course, from the upstairs to downstairs, it's kind of blocked off with a fire rated door as well. And also, there's two other things that the legal permit would require 
for a legal basement apartment is having above grade egress windows and fire weighted drywall in the ceilings and around the furnace room just for fire safety purposes. I do know in some cases, some people like to soundproof the, the ceilings just kind of have additional separation between the two units as well. And also in my case, was I added separate laundry for the basement. So that way there's additional privacy between the units and there's not much mix and mingle between myself and the downstairs tenants. But this is a strategy that I also do with my other properties that are duplexes or triplexes. I do like to add separate laundry for each unit. Not only is something that the tenants appreciate, I find it helps attract better quality tenants and it could benefit the rental income as well. Especially this less, it just makes it more convenient for the tenants and just it kind of benefits everyone in that case. Yes, that's a good point that you raised. I would imagine when I think about it this way, like if your rental unit is missing stuff like laundry as well as like a a dishwasher and it only has like a stand-up shower and doesn't have a bathtub, I would imagine that's kind of cutting down the rental pool, making it smaller and smaller so that the chances of you getting a high quality tenant are lessened by lacking those things. So it's smart. It sounds like you thought about that there and made sure that you had those items there because a dishwasher kind of seems like a no-brainer. I mean, it can be quite costly to add in some of these other things. Like if you don't have a bathtub, add that in. But buying a, a you can buy a relatively affordable dishwasher, five, six hundred dollars and seems like you're going to earn that money back pretty quickly because yes, that seems like a lot of tenants won't want to rent a place that is missing a dishwasher like that. They'll just not even consider the place. So it seems like investing in that and maybe as private laundry and a bathtub might make sense, but definitely a dishwasher that seems like it pays for itself relatively quickly. For sure. And it's funny that you mentioned that as well, because what I've noticed is there's, especially given the way how the rent market has been exploding during the whole interest rate hike cycle. A lot of buyers who were planning to buy were looking to rent instead. So I've noticed that has dried up the supply of good quality rentals as well. So a lot of the feedback I've gotten from like prospective tenants that they, they love the renovations or it's pretty hard to come across those type of quote unquote high quality renovation or renovated apartments in the city of Toronto as well. So I find that even doing a fresh coat of paint, a nice deep cleaning, making sure everything presents well that alone will help you get better quality tenants as well, right? Because I find a mistake a lot of investors make is it's not taking proper care of the unit. This kind of, right, if you just put up on the market when it's not professionally clean or there's a lot of marks, damages on the wall, et cetera, those small things know what deter the good prospective tenants from renting the property as well, right? So that's another big reason why I do kind of make sure that the property is kind of kept up to like just fresh coat of paint, making sure it's professionally clean before I rent it out to the next set of tenants and et cetera. That's a great point. And I'm just curious how handy yourself do you any of this stuff yourself. I mean, it sounds like you're pretty busy as, as a realtor. I would imagine that you don't have a lot of spare time. So are you doing any of this stuff like yourself, like the painting or anything else? Or do you outsource that to all other people? Like the cleaning as well. Do you do any of that or basically outsource that to everyone? Okay. It's funny that you mentioned that because to be honest, I'm the least handyman person. So typically when it comes to painting, general handyman stuff, I usually outsource that. I do have a couple of contracts that do kind of help out with these items. And if you have a cleaner that I work with, they clean all my properties too, just before they do tenant moves in. And of course, before I do the showings and et cetera. So 
I do like to outsource these things. Just kind of saves. It's a bit more time effective that way. And it usually gets the job done quicker as well if I outsource it to someone who specializes in that tax too. So I do have a contact list of plumbers, HVAC, electricians, landscapers, cleaners, and etc. So whenever my tenant texts me, hey, let's say, for example, the other day, the furnace at one of my properties, unfortunately shut down and it's one of the coldest nights of the year. So I texted my HVAC guy, my, hey, the furnace shut down at one of my properties. Would you be able to go and check it out? He was able to go there within the next day and the problem was solved. I personally didn't have to go there because he's already fixed the problem. The tenants were happy. Everything was sorted out. So I think having that system in process is very important. There is a common misconception that if you have a rental property, you have to go there every month, make sure everything's okay. But that's not necessarily the case. As long as you set the expectation from the beginning with the tenants, if something does go wrong, just shoot me a message while my contacts know to kind of fix that problem accordingly. As long as you have that system in place, and as long as you have those respective contacts in place, it does make it a lot more to manage multiple properties at once. No, that's very well said. And another thought came to mind here. Are you managing all these properties yourself or are you having the assistance of property manager? Like what was your thought process on whether to do it yourself or do it with a property manager? I'm sure you thought about that there. Definitely. So for at the moment, I'm managing all seven of my properties at the moment. However, if it does come to the point, let's say, if it's something like a five-unit building and up, I would say probably makes sense to get property management at that point. But most of my properties are either duplexes or triplexes. So it's kind of self-managed at the moment. But if it's something like a larger multiplex, for example, I think that is something I would definitely outsource to a property manager. Yes, it kind of becomes a bit much after a while and you want to be able to have some time for yourself as well. So yes, definitely. I think that's a smart way to go about doing it. And I'm just curious, you mentioned earlier about buying a, like you said that you're a fan of of bungalows in parts of the city like Scarborough, for example. I'm just curious. So you said you did quite a bit of renovations. I believe you said you did over $200,000 worth of renovations. So if this is a rental property, you have to come up with the 20% down. I'm just curious, like how you said you're refinancing other properties, but how did you pay for the renovations as well? That sounds like a lot of money you put into the property. Like, did you have that much equity in the other properties that you could pull it out to cover the down payment and the renovations? It seems like a lot of money you put into that property. Definitely. So for the rental hack and bungalow that I'm currently in, that the renovation came from a combination of my equity from the very first property and my savings too. So I'll go back to my first property, which was pre-construction free hotels that I purchased for $526,000 back in 2016. Fast forward to like a year and a half later, the property is appraised at $700,000. So I was able to take the equity of that property, use that towards the down payment of the property that I have converted to a legal duplex, and in terms of the renovations that they come from savings as well. And however, I do want to mention one thing. So that I just spent a bit over $200,000 in rentals for this property because I'm living in it. So I did quite a bit of structural changes, did really high-end finishes and et cetera. But for most of my bungalow where I convert to a duplex, I typically spend around $110,000 at max on renovations as well. So that's usually the average that I spend. It's just this one here is principal residence too. So that's why I kind of spent a bit more. Some of the structural changes I've done is, for example, I had a lock to the bungalow. I converted the ceilings to vaulted ceilings and also did 
extra insulation in the basement too. So that way there's less sound travel between the two units. So those were some of the things that have added to that budget. Thank you for sharing that. It's very helpful. And yes, I'm just curious. So how did you originally get the idea to house hack? Myself, to be honest, I heard a Scott McGillivray story from Income Property about him house hacking and we used to watch the show Income Property. So that's how I got the idea, but maybe you got it a different way yourself. So I'm just curious, how did you come up with the idea to house hack? Was Did you hear it from somebody else or read a book or something like that? Also, maybe you can just talk a bit about the numbers. Like I'm sure the numbers played in your decision to house hack. I'm, I'm sure you looked at how it would be carrying the property on your own versus house hacking. And also you probably looked at the numbers, keeping it the way it is versus renovating and how much more rent that you could get after the renovation. So maybe you can talk about what gave you the idea to house hack and just go over a bit more of the numbers as well when you were deciding to do this. Definitely. I think the biggest thing that gave me the idea to house hack is because it kind of makes more sense on paper as well, getting that additional rental in from the basement. But aside from that, it also helps me scale my portfolio as well because the banks are able to consider, obviously it depends on which bank because every bank has their own separate policies on rental income, but the banks are able to take percentage of the rental income and essentially add that to the total combined income that I do make, which is also known as like a mortgage offset as well. So that's something, so doing a duplex rental hack is something that has really helped me scale my portfolio to additional uh, because the one I'm in was my second property, but renting out my basement, showing that additional income was one of the factors that has helped me to scale my portfolio to additional five properties over the next three years, essentially. So I think that's one of the main reasons why I decided to rent out the basement. And also I wasn't using the basement as often. So I was like, I might as well just rent it out and get that extra income coming in. I'm just curious, did you ever consider living in the basement yourself and renting out the upstairs for more money or did that not cross your mind? I'm just curious. To be honest, I didn't. Just for two reasons, because the upstairs has a bit more living space, a little bit more upgrades with the upstairs, like have like 10 feet phone to ceilings upstairs and et cetera. And also I was getting around almost $2,200 in rental income from the basement. If I were to rent out the upstairs, maybe I'll get additional $500. So I, I personally didn't think it's worth the extra $500 to be staying in the basement, if that makes sense. So that's why I decided to stay on the main floor and rent out the basement. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like the, the numbers played into your decision a lot. And yeah, this shows the importance of considering the numbers and running them ahead of time. And I'm sure you did some research and looked at what other places were renting in the area. And that's how you came up with your final decision there. Definitely, definitely. And that's the main reason why I personally love investing in bungalows. Like there's so many benefits of it. Like one is a bigger lot size, so there's long-term value. And of course, like it, they're very easy to convert to a legal duplex. Especially the newer homes that they're building nowadays, like anything in the 1990s or newer than 2000s. In many cases, they don't come with separate entrances. So to convert those to a legal duplex, it is doable, but it will be additional cost because you have to either do side or entrance cuddle that costs about five thousand dollars ish with permits again depends on the contractor that you're using or a walk-up basement entrance from the backyard that will cost about ten to fifteen thousand dollars with permits depending on which contractor that you use so buying those new homes you're paying a premium factor already plus you have to spend additional money to convert to a two unit so that's why i believe that bungalows are that sweet spot they do have the upside potential in case you do want to do a rebuild, because they usually come on much larger lot sizes. And 
they're usually a bit more cost-effective than newer homes too. Because it also helps that they have that separate entrance already, so you don't have to spend the 5000 like what you were saying. That's correct. That's correct, right? So that's a video about investing in bungalows, because in most cases, do have a separate entrance already. Great. And Ms. Kirst, something that I've heard from people looking to buy rental properties in the GTA is they say it's challenging to get a cash flow positive property. Maybe you can let me know whether it was timing or whatnot. I don't know how much that played into it, but how have you made it work? Because the Toronto Star article said you own seven properties in the GTA. I don't know if you're at property eight or nine since the article was written there, but how have you made that work? Because I have heard from some people that it's tough to, like, not only are you spending a lot on, on the property versus somewhere more affordable like Hamilton or Niagara Falls or Windsor, it's tough to get a positive cash flow of properties. So maybe you can share with the listeners how you're able to get that to work. Maybe cash flow isn't as much of your priority, it's more about appreciation. Maybe you can just share your thought process and how you were able to make it work in the GTA. Mm -hmm. So for in the GTA, especially in Toronto, positive cash flow can be a bit challenging, but the work around that is usually finding something that has duplex or triplex and up potential. Because if let's say if you're buying a condo with single rental income or even a townhouse, in most cases, it could be negative cash flow unless you're doing a much larger down payment. So that's the main advantage of buying something where you could additional units to it. So that way you're taking advantage of that dual rental income, for example. In those cases, you would be positive cash flow. For example, the latest project I'm working on right now is a semi-detached in downtown Toronto. It was initially a single family home, but I've converted to a triplex in order to have that positive cash flow coming in. So that's the trick when it comes to investing in the Toronto region is having that dual rental income coming in so that we're able to pretty much cover your carrying costs and have some money coming in or it might be even break even which is necessarily not a bad thing because as you mentioned before you could be banking on the long-term appreciation of the property as well. well that's great thanks for sharing that there and Miss Curse, it sounds like you've done quite a few renovations over the years so maybe you can provide the listeners with some tips when it comes to dealing with contractors, finding reliable people. How did you find people that you trusted doing this kind of work? Because yeah, it sounds like things could easily go over budget and things could go wrong. So yeah, how were you able to, I'm sure there's been complications, but yes, maybe you can share some tips to when working with contractors, like getting several quotes, how have you made it work for yourself there? And, and what tips do you have when to make it successful relationship when working with contractors? 100%. I think the biggest thing when it comes to vetting contractors is a person like to see the past work in person or my personal favorite way of getting contractors is referrals because it's a referral I already have that additional trust in them if that makes sense right so it's either referrals or kind of seeing the work in person personally I do work with about two trusted contractors so I just kind of maintain that relationship because they've done work for me in the past no complaints to get the job done six to eight weeks and on to the next project so I do kind of stick with the same set of contrasts that I use as well. But for those who are just starting off, I would say the best source of buying contrasts is through referrals. Or if there's someone you've met online, if it's a random contractor, for example, I should just seeing their past work in person, or maybe just kind of touch base with their past customers just for some testimonials. So doing a due diligence is very important as well, because you don't want to be in a situation where you've hired a contractor and they've gone MIA in the middle of the project. 
It takes much longer to complete it. You end up paying mortgage on something that's not being rented out, and etc. So when it comes to real estate investing, contracts is one of the most crucial aspects. So I really suggest vetting the contractors, seeing the working person, seeing if anyone in their circle of influence does have referrals to work on. And if you find a good contractor, just really suggest keeping on to them and keep building that relationship. Even if they do charge a little bit more than other contractors, I personally think it's worth it to kind of have that trust, that relationship, because they'll get the job done quicker for you. The quality of work is there and it really benefits you on scaling your portfolio as well. Yes, I'd imagine once you have a good experience with a contractor, then you know that you can go back to them and you trust them in the future and they're going to likely deliver quality work to you as opposed to, I guess, someone where the work didn't go so well. And yes, it, like you said earlier, it's just good to have those reliable people like the plumber, the electrician, your HVAC person, just having that list of people that you know that you can go to instead of having to always research that from scratch. 100%, 100%. And that's very key. That's why I like to climb, keep a list of all the contacts as well. Just in case, like, even during the management of the property, in case anything goes wrong, it could be fixed within the next day or so. And lastly, I'm just curious if you could talk a bit about how joint ventures allowed you to grow your real estate investment portfolio. I understand us talking offline before the interview, but you mentioned that you hadn't bought all these properties on your own. So maybe you can talk a bit about why you decided to do that and how it's enabled you to scale your investment portfolio, buying a property with somebody else. Definitely. So for majority of my properties are individually owned, but for three of them is owned with a partner. So we went in 50-50 on these properties as well. When it comes to joint ventures, I personally like to do it with someone that I trust. Like for example, my joint venture partner, I've known him for over 10 years, really good friend of mine as well too, right? So Obviously, when it comes to joint ventures, it does help you scale as well because you're using combined income to purchase the property. So that also benefits the total debt servicing ratio. To be honest, in general, for joint ventures, I personally like to do with someone that I trust, someone that I've known for a very long time. I know there's some investors out there that are comfortable doing it with, with random individuals, but I feel like there could be some risk that does come with that because you have to look at joint ventures as a long-term partnership. Let's say, for example, me and you buy a property together, Next year I get married, I could come to you and say, hey, Sean, I'm getting married. I have to sell the property, but you may refuse to sell the property. So I have seen some cases like that happen in the past. So the key thing to a successful joint venture is making sure everyone has a clear understanding of the long-term objective, the long-term goal for the property. So my partner and I, for each property, we have a specific plan or of how long we're going to hold it for or what our strategy is. Like, for example, one of our properties we plan to do a rebuild in the next year or two, right? So that's a plan that we have for one of our properties. Just making sure you have a plan in place. And this applies to if you're buying a property by yourself individually or if you join venture, the key thing is to make sure you have a plan in place for each property. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 206-206. 
647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.